Welcome to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. This is part two of our interview with Gary Unger. Gary will share the rest of his journey in the NHL and also his playing career in Europe and his coaching career in Phoenix and, of course, the Tulsa Oilers. Andrew picks it up with the next question. Well, Gary, you were certainly uh, a tough guy in your own right, too, back in the day. And uh, even with your stats, I forgot to mention earlier, you had over a 1,000 penalty minutes in your career. Whoa. And according to HockeyFights.com, oh. 23 fighting majors in the NHL <laughs> specifically, one of them being Dave Schultz. So you fought some tough guys. So um, clearly, I don't think you ever planned to just drop the gloves right at the face-off and go like uh, Bob Prober. But uh, did you ever have a a plan or a mindset whenever you're about to drop the gloves. You also got to mention, you know, not just Dave Schultz, but you got to mention like Noel Picard. Who? Picard. Oh, Noel Picard, I fought. Yeah, I fought Bobby Plager. Yeah, I mean, I mean, these guys were tough. I know you know Dave Schultz, but they were tough guys. Well, here's another guy that I fought, and we ended up being teammates. Is King Kong Korab. <laughs> King Kong. Jerry. Jerry Korab. Yeah. Played for the Chicago Blackhawks. Okay. Here's my mentality, okay? First of all, When, I, when, when we played in the West, when we played junior hockey, in junior hockey, you needed to take care of yourself. If you, I've, I've been in a building. Yeah. I was in a building in Edmonton. I had a little winger that was a tough guy on my wing, and he was the instigator. I, I never instigated a fight. But when, you, when they knew that you were tough, like I played tough with my stick and I was dirty, I, I did it without getting penalties, tried to, anyhow. But what it does is it gives you room. People don't bother you. They go after, guys want to go after guys that they know they can beat. So my mentality was, first of all, I knew how to fight. I took boxing when I was a kid. I was in, a, and this is before even you go into the NHL. We were in a, in a rink in Edmonton. Playoffs, so it was back and forth, back and forth, and all of a sudden a brawl broke out, and the referees couldn't control it. And all of a sudden, I'm in a building in Edmonton, and they shut the lights off so that we couldn't fight. Well, you, I backed myself up to the boards and got my sticks. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we went through all that era. So my my mentality was. I wasn't going to back down from any of these guys because they were going to test you. Right. You're a rookie coming in the league. And, and I surprised a few guys. And all of a sudden, if I fought one guy on each team, they would know. Well, here's, here's I'll tell you a Boston story. Okay. So, you know who Derek Sanderson is? Yeah. Okay, Derek Sanderson at when the press was in the East and I'm talking about Memorial cup, Derek Sanderson got into a big brawl in Edmonton with the Edmonton oil Kings. He was supposedly known as the toughest guy in hockey, in junior hockey, Derek Sanderson playing for the Niagara falls flyers. They went into Edmonton, a big brawl broke out and Sanderson uh, beat up two or three guys whole big thing anyhow now i go to the ontario junior hockey league and i got to play against these guys we end up playing niagara falls in the playoffs 
it was during the time when they cut my hair so i got no hair and i'm a geeky looking guy and but nobody knew you back then you know they didn't know whether you could or you couldn't and the game is intimidation that's part of the game so we go in for some reason niagara falls had finished above us in the playoffs so they had home ice advantage but for some reason they couldn't get their their game so they said we don't care we'll play the first two games in london and then we'll go back and beat them we'll win the first two in london and we'll beat them back at home so we went into london they came into london we won the first two games i think i got a hat trick in one game and a couple goals in the other game and all of a sudden they're down two nothing in the series and that was there now they knew who i was so there was no fights or anything like that. It was just the games. So now we go back into Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls was like the Boston Gardens. It's a small little rink. People hanging over the boards and, and just jammed. You know. We go into the game. I'm starting the game. Sanderson's starting the game. I've got a small left winger here. And my other guy wasn't much of a fighter. We didn't really have a real tough team. So I'm, and all of a sudden they, I see them push this guy out of the, out of the player's box. It's a lumberjack from Quebec. And he lines up on this side of, of Derek Sanderson with this little Johnny Mercer guy. And I say to myself, I can see what's going on here. Puck drops glove they all their every one of those guys dropped their gloves worst <laughs> this lumberjack grabs johnny mercer he's got him and i jump on the back of this lumberjack guy and now all hell breaks loose bench is clear the whole deal but one of the things i knew from this game in edmonton was that what sanderson would do is he would sucker guys you know he wouldn't stand up straight and go with them he'd he'd sucker them first and then they'd be dizzy and then he'd pound them so anyhow now we'd worked our way down to the goal down by our goal and i'm on the ground and i've got a guy down on the ground and i'm i'm seeing sanderson skating around like a shark he's coming around this way and i i'm down on one knee and i've got this guy and he doesn't think i'm looking so I am, I'm down here and he's coming to take me out of the game. I can see that's happening. So I'm down on one knee and he comes in and he, and I jump up and I popped him. Perfect. Right, right in the head. And I dragged him to center ice and I pounded him right in his own building. Wow. So that was, that was the start of some of the guys that were going into the NHL knew that I could fight right. because all of a sudden now I just beat the, the toughest guy, supposedly the toughest guy in, yeah. in junior hockey. So now we go into Boston. He's playing for the Bruins. Bobby Orr gets hit by, I think it was Pat Quinn. I'm sitting on the bench. I'm with Toronto. No, I'm with Toronto. I'm still a geeky looking guy. Uh, Bobby Orr flips up into the air. By the time Orr hit the ice, Bruins had 
cleared the bench. So there goes, there goes, there goes Toronto. I'm already, I'm already nervous playing in the Boston Gardens, and these guys look like they're giants. Right. You know, they got the big black uniforms, and the the rink was tiny, and the whole deal. So I'm actually, I'm actually trying to hide. <laughs> the guys are. The guys are on the on the ice, and I'm and the referees just step back. Now you got thirty guys on the ice. If you can't fight, you're in trouble. Yeah. So I'm I'm going like this, and the trainer's trying to throw me out over. The, get going. Get going. <laughs> so you're on the bench. Now. I'm on the bench. They're all out on the ice, and I look over, and there's Derek Sanderson standing. So I said, okay, I'm going, and I grabbed Derek, and I said, you don't want to fight, do you? He said, no, I don't want to fight you. <laughs> so, oh, so, so we stood there and watched as he's as, as just, just brawling sure on. Make sure you hold on to him. <laughs> yeah, pretend. Yeah, yeah. So, did you have any guys be challenging you in juniors in the NHL because of that Derek Sanderson fight, thinking that you were maybe the next tough guy? No, I don't think I was. I was looked at as the tough guy because I needed to score goals. If I didn't score goals, we didn't win. You know, I was one of those guys that. that that we needed goals from. So I didn't need to be sitting in the penalty box, but I didn't need to be, I didn't want somebody else pushing me around. And where it comes from, it's not really the fight itself that that you establish this. It's when you and I go into the corner and you give me a shot and I don't do anything. I, I let you do that. I'm giving you a shot back and now we're pushing back. We may not even fight, but the guy saying in his brain, this guy's not backing off. Right. So I, where I played, I played center. I played center. So I'm playing in front of the net. Where's all the, where's all the action with the defenseman? The defenseman wow, are right. getting me out of the front of the net. You were allowed to cross check back then. I had marks all over my, but I never, I never moved. That's where I, that's where I got into a fight with Bobby Plager. This is before I got traded to St. Louis. Playing Noel Picard, the guy in that picture that Bobby Orr jumped in the air. He was the defenseman standing there. He was about six, five, probably two sixty. He was one of these French lumberjacks. So, so I'm playing for Detroit and we're in St. Louis and I'm in front of the net and these guys are whacking me, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, if I'm going to play 20 years against these guys, this is not going to happen. So the one time we go down, plays in their end he starts whacking me and whacking me and then the puck goes goes out and they're going down towards our net i skated out and then i i said to myself i gotta stop this right now i turned around dropped my gloves and stood at the blue line and i said okay pick let's go <laughs> make, sure, make sure you duck yeah <laughs> there was nobody around like a lot of these guys fight when the referees are there to jump right. in the middle there was nobody so i'm standing there my heart's pounding this guy throws a punch without lying. His hand was as big as my head. Yeah. If he'd have hit me, I moved to the side. Boop, I didn't, didn't hurt him, but I popped him once, popped him again, and then the referees came in. And then once the referees come in, then you start yelling, I'm going to kill you. And I'm gonna <laughs> let and, me at him. Yeah. yeah, let me at him. And I'm saying, to the, I'm saying to the referee, don't let go of me. I'll kill yeah. you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, and I did the same thing with Bobby Plager. Bobby Plager was even a funnier story because we got, we went right at it in front of the net and I dropped my stick 
and I'm now in front of the net and I'm in an awkward position and Bobby came through with a haymaker and I stepped back and his fist stopped right there, it stopped right there. And as I stepped back, I stepped on my stick and I flew back at the same time the punch came through. So everybody, if you were standing in the stands, thought I went, I, I got just cold cocked. <laughs> never even touched me. <laughs> then I jumped up and we scrapped for a little bit. So, but the, the other one was, the other one was in Chicago, King Kong Korep, who I ended up playing with in LA, Jerry Korab, great guy and, and tough fighters. They had Korab and they had uh, Keith Magnuson. Both guys were six, six, five, and they had reputations. They fought through junior and all that stuff. They're doing the same thing. They're bugging me and, and I'm whacking him and he's getting mad. So all of a sudden it ends up, he's coming after me. I cross-checked him in front of the net and somehow we ended up behind the net and the referees jumped in. So they're in the middle of us and I'm down on one knee again behind the net and Jerry is just foaming at the mouth. He just wants to kill me. He doesn't care. He, he's throwing his gloves and throwing his stuff at me. And, and all of a sudden, for some reason, the referees got doing something else. And here he comes. <laughs> so I'm there by myself behind the I came up off and boom, I hit him one time. And it was like a cartoon where the guy was on the glass and the guy slid down the glass. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of it wow. so so those are the kind of fights that i was in they, yeah. they, and once again like once the guys know that you can handle yourself and you're going to fight and you play tough with the during the game they kind of leave you alone and you get more room yeah so that was kind of my fighting thing so gary do you still then it's kind of a two-part question do you still see a place personally for fighting in the game especially the nhl and do you also think eventually the NHL will completely take the game of fighting out? I think they probably will, but I don't think they should. Do you think it'll be anytime soon, next five, 10 years? I would think so. I, I think that the way society is today, that that's going to be something that's probably going to happen. Yeah. Uh, the, the, I'll tell you what the difference is. When there is fighting in the game, the players police themselves you don't need three referees out there and, and and somebody telling you not to fight but what you don't have is you don't have some guy that can't fight running around spearing you and hacking you and doesn't have to back it up right. you know what i'm saying yeah. most not most every tough guy that i've played with or played against or fought or played on the same team with they don't go out just to fight that was, that was in the original six. Coaches would tap guys and say, you go get him, you go get him. That doesn't happen anymore, and that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't be the kind of fight. The kind of fights that you get into are, are things that explode into, into something where, where you go into the corner and a guy gives you a dirty shot, and all of a sudden you're both going at it. It's not me physically getting off the bench, spotting, oh, I, this shift, I have to fight that guy. What did you think of the Rangers and uh, Capitals incident then? Did you, that almost bring you back to the old days of why wow, you do need a yeah, Reeves or because, something? Because the players, the players police themselves. And if you know as a player 
that if, if I do this, I'm going to have to back it up. Maybe I'm not going to do it. So there's a place and a time for all this stuff to happen. You do every so often, you know, I played with a couple of guys that were dingbats and you had to watch them. I played with a guy named Steve Durbano and you never knew what this guy, <laughs> yeah, that guy was. Not you never knew what this guy was going to do. And he was a really good friend of mine. And I'm standing in front of the net. He was playing for Colorado. I was still in St. Louis. He got traded to Colorado. And all of a sudden, a stick shattered over my pants. And it's Derby standing there with us. He, he chopped me. You know, and we were really good friends. I said, Derby, what are you doing? <laughs> he says, you're on the other team. <laughs> so there are there are some guys out there that are dingbats, but most of the guys that were tough guys, they fought other tough guys. Right. Uh, and they were they were always the greatest guys in the dressing room. Oh. They were, you know, Nick Fatio with the New York Rangers. He was a tough. And here was here's the other scenario back then. We're playing, we're playing in New Madison Square Gardens. Nick Fatio hasn't been on the ice. Now we played a full game. Scores five four, so we've been skating and sweating and running up and down the and and Nick Fatio has just been sitting there like this, hanging on to a stick. And now there's a, a minute and a half left to go in the game, and the whole crowd's yelling Nick, 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 and we want to get out of the building. We we want, I want this game over because I'm exhausted, and they're going to send out a fresh guy that's going to fight somebody that's been playing. I ain't fighting that. So seven all-star games. I, I have a picture I'm going to pull up that I think it's a, well, I'll just pull up the picture, but out of seven, what's your favorite? Well, it would have been the, the one I won the car. Obviously that yeah, was in Chicago. Of course. And, great, great and, suit, by the way. And yeah. I, think, Looks incredible. I think, I think this is the picture. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so for the listeners, I, Gary, how would you describe this? The suit? Yeah. Well, when you're on the plane, you got to play checkers or you got to play chess. I use my pants as a as a board. <laughs> That's great. You got the. No, I'll tell you. I like the look shoes at, too. Look man. at it's like the rock kiss, kiss, kiss shoes. Boots. Yeah. 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 Got platform well, shoes. Here, here was my philosophy. I didn't follow the styles. I made them. Looks <laughs> <laughs> like it. Okay. Yeah. So, so that during that time, there was suit makers in. We get we got our suits in New York. Before they put the Armani and all the things on, we just go down to the factory. And there was another one. I think that one was from Montreal. Really? So there was a, a suit maker in Montreal. So everywhere you went, there was somebody that had a deal on something else. And that was just kind of a crazy time. Um, um, you're, you know, no offense here. You're kind of a stud. You're a stud in this picture, man. You got the flow. Yeah, you got the flow. Uh, I know you make a joke saying that that's a wig, but that's what you know. No, I had, I had fun with the game. It was, it was hard to go well for a few years. And, yeah. uh, I mean, wow. You're in really good shape, man. That's yeah. really good. So what happened to the car? Well, I lived on the farm. Yep. I actually worked for, when I was in Detroit, I worked for Chrysler. That's another, another whole story. I, uh, I'm a car guy. So I bought a Corvette with my signing bonus, uh, when I first broke in the league. Now I went to Detroit and I was at practice and the trainer comes to me and says, there's a guy that wants to take you for lunch. I said, okay. So we go for lunch and he says, uh, he introduced himself and he was the CEO of Dodge, okay. Dodge cars. Gordy worked for Lincoln Mercury and all the guys had uh, deals. So he said, we'd like to hire you to 
to represent Dodge cars. I said, okay, what does that involve? He said, well, the first thing you got to do is get rid of that GM, get rid of that Corvette. So I ended up selling the Corvette to a friend of mine that was that didn't make the NHL that we grew up together with. He became a, a Mountie in, the, okay. in Canada and he couldn't afford a Corvette. So I sold him my Corvette and I said, they said, uh, what do you want to drive? And I said, you just get me the fastest thing you got. So I, they said, okay. So I, I met them. They said in two weeks, we'll, we'll meet down at the Chrysler. There's a big building in Detroit, downtown Detroit called the Chrysler building. And at the top floor is where the all the executives go and they have a big uh, restaurant deal where they go for lunch and stuff. So, so they said, we will bring you a car. He said, have somebody drop you off. Don't, don't bring a car with you because we're going to give you a car that day. So I said, okay. So Peter Stemkowski dropped me off and I go into this place and they're all got this big fancy thing and going on and, and we have lunch and, and now we sit down at a table and they said, okay. I said, okay, what do you want to do? They said, well, we want you to drive our car. We're going to, we'll give you a car every three months. You'll drive a car every three months and then turn it in and we'll get you a new car. But you're going to go to the dealerships and sign autographs and go to the Detroit auto show, which I loved anyhow, uh, and, and sign autographs and represent, represent our company. And when you go to the games, you'll be driving a Dodge and kids will see it and that'll be it. So they said, what, what do you want? I said, well, this was in 1970. I said, okay, I will get a uh, 1970 Challenger with a 426 Hemi, four speed, 600 horsepower. There was one of, it was one of three made. It was orange with white interior and it was hot. But anyhow, they gave me this other car to drive before I, they said, well, that'll take a few weeks to make this car. So I got this car, or I got I go down to the park and they give me a set of keys. We finish lunch and they give me a set of keys and said, "There's the executive parking lot. Just push the button and and take the car that the buzzer goes off." So I'm looking around for this hot rod car, and it's I don't see anything. And there's a there's a purple, it's a purple Super B. It was called a Super B back then. It had little hubcaps. It had it had bench seats at a stick shift. It looked like a grandfather car. It was a two-door, but it was purple. Didn't have any stripes, anything on it. And it had in it a 446 pack, which is three, three two-barrel carburetors with, again, 600 horsepower. It was like driving a chassis for the... <laughs> I got in this car, and it's just rumbling. <laughs> I drove it. I drove it to training camp in Port Huron. Again, we keep going back to Port Huron again, but it's about 50, 60, 70 miles to, to Port Huron from Detroit. And I blew the chrome. It would kick in the passing gear at 140 miles an hour. I blew the chrome off the top of the windshield at 155. Wow. You know, stupid thing to give a kid 20 years old, yeah. that kind yeah. of a car. <laughs> but that's, that's what I did. So anyhow, I'm sitting and I said, well, there, there must be others. They said, how much money do you want? You know, you're not, we're not just going to give you the car. We're going to 
And I said, money. I said, I'm making $10,000 a year. What do I need money for? You know, two years ago, I had a paper route. I was making $15 a month. So anyhow, I said, I don't need any money. I said, I, I don't want money. I said, I have a sister that's crippled. That's, that's five years younger than me. She had polio. So her, her muscles never grew in her legs. I said, she's just turning 16, 17. I said, you can build her a car with hand controls so she can drive with hand controls. And my dad had never had a new car ever. So I said, okay, my dad, get my dad a station wagon you know, one of those Chevy Chase station wagons with the wood grain on the side. He was one of the first guys in Calgary and they delivered these two cars in Calgary, one to my sister and one to my dad. And my dad was one of the first cars in Calgary to have air conditioning and, and power windows because we never use air conditioning in Canada very much, but he got a brand new car as well. So I had all these, and then, then I, I would get a charger and a and, uh, and then I got an Imperial. And then when I was on the farm, I got a truck. So going back to the all-star game, I knew all the guys that, that they were the sponsors of the, the car. Okay. So I called them up and I said, listen, I got enough cars. I said, it was, it was in 74. And that's just when the SUVs were coming out. The first SUVs came out in 74 and, and Dodge and Plymouth had built a, uh, what was called a trail duster a Plymouth trail duster and it was a four wheel drive. And I said, uh, if I pay the extra, if it's more money, can I get a, a truck instead of a car? And they said, sure, no problem. So they delivered it again. I got orange and it I took the bolts off of the roof. So the roof came right off, I took the back seat out and I put a mattress in it had a roll bar. I put a lift kit on it and I made a monster truck out of it. <laughs> and, and I used I used it at, on the farm to drive the kids around, and in the winter time I would tow them, you know, on the toboggan and on the sleds and all that stuff. So I, and I loved that car. It was a great car. I had it for a long time. Wow, wow, that's crazy. So, so we can't uh, let you go without covering the Iron Man story. So 914 games. You move on to Atlanta, uh, and I think this is a crappy thing to do. It goes back to this old school coaching hard asses right so mcneil doesn't scratch you he dresses you for the game and won't play because he i'm assuming he thinks it's too much about you and not about the team is what I, right what i hear well so you have to sit on the bench there's a little more to the story okay we were playing first of all everybody says hey it must have been great to play without being hurt nobody plays not hurt. Every player that's playing gets on the plane and puts ice back on his knee and shoulder. And, you know, I separated my shoulder three times. My trainer, Tommy Woodcock would tape it up and I would play in here. Uh, I broke my nose 11 times. I've got probably hundred stitches on my face, uh, broke my cheekbone twice, broke my wrist, broke my ankle. So, and played with it. So, and not just played, not just sat on the bench and did a shift. You, you only need to be on the ice for one second right. to be in that game. So we were playing in Winnipeg. I was playing with Atlanta and our farm team was in Birmingham, Alabama. 
and we played in Winnipeg on a Tuesday night, and Wednesday night we played in Edmonton. And then for some unknown reason, we had kind of a week off, which only happens a couple of times in a year. So we're in Winnipeg, the third period, brawl breaks out. I jump into the brawl just as a guy is standing up. I jump in like this and a guy stands up and separates my shoulder. So I'm, I'm done. Tape it up. Doctor looks at it. Yeah, you got you to gotta separate the shoulder. We go into Edmonton. And he's trying to, the coach is trying to say, you're not playing. I said, okay, I'm not going to play. Who's coming in to take my spot? Where's your farm club? That's in Birmingham, Alabama. I said, you're going to get somebody from Birmingham, Alabama to get in here for the, for the hockey game tomorrow night. There's no chance. Why would you want to go with one less guy? I can tape it up. He says, okay, you tape it up. You got to play. You can't just, you know, you can't just take a shift here. And I said, fine, tape it up. I'll play. So I, it happened to be the top arm on my, it was this shoulder and I could, I could move, I could play. So I played the game. I was okay. I would, you know, I was, didn't score any goals, but I was a plus player and it was fine. Now we go back to Atlanta and I've got a week. And my wife was still back in St. Louis on the farm because she was pregnant with our second daughter and she couldn't travel. She was having trouble with miscarriages, so she couldn't travel. So I was all by myself. So after I would go to practice, he made me practice with a, she couldn't miss practice. And then I would go, they had a, uh, you know, they had the old whirlpools, you know, those old metal whirlpools, had metal whirlpool with heat and the other one had ice in it. Well, it's not bad to have, a, have an ice pack when you put your foot in it, but for me to get my shoulder and I had to get into the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. So now I'm going from the ice to the back and forth and I'm moving it. And so I had a week to do that. And I finally got it to that point where it was, it was fine. And he's still telling me, I don't think you can play. So now we're playing a home and home game against St. Louis. It was just before Christmas time. I, I hadn't been back to St. Louis yet. I hadn't played against St. Louis since I'd been traded. We played on the, uh, that day on the Friday night and we're at practice in the morning and he calls me over and he says, I want to see you do some slap shots, which means, you know, moving your arm. So I did a couple slap shots. It, it was still, it was still catching once in a while, but it was, I think I was kind of through it. So, and, and I'd always say to the doctor, okay, can I hurt this thing anymore? That was the question. If I play with this thing, am I going to be an invalid? You know, and he said, no, if you can stand the pain, you can play. And I never took any pain pills or anything like that or shots. I'd never do that. So, so then he says, well, I want the doctor to check it out again. I said, it's fine. I said, I, we got a game tonight. Why do I want, when we didn't have a doctor in the rink, I had to go down to the doctor's office downtown, sit in the office, wait for him to come and check my shoulder out, spend all afternoon doing that, and then go back to the game. So I did it. We played the game and we lost 4-3 and he was hot. I played, everything was fine. We go back into St. Louis the next night and now I'm in warm up and I'm thinking, wow, my shoulder feels really good. And we're playing the game and I'm 
not planned. So I'm sitting on the bench. First period goes by, second period goes by, second period, Cliff Fletcher, the general manager, comes down to me and he says, what's going on? I said, my shoulder's fine. I said, he's just not playing me. We go into the third period. Now the score is seven to two for us. I think the score ended up seven to two. So there's three or four minutes left in the, in the game. The whole rink knows that I haven't been on the ice. So everybody's standing and cheering. The guy, the guys, the guys on the bench, my teammates are saying, take my shift, just jump over, take my shift. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, if he wants to bench me, he'll just bench me for the next game. I mean, you know, we got enough problems on our team. We need to, you know, at least listen to the coach. I guess that's what he wants to do. Then that's what he's doing. So, so, Two or three guys were still arguing with me. And now we got down to like 30 seconds left to go in the game. And I am now shuffled myself where I'm in the middle of the, of the pack on the bench. And the puck came right where I was sitting. And one player from their team and one player from our team came to get the puck. Sticks flew up. We all jumped up to get out of the way of the sticks flying on the bench. He thought I was jumping over. He grabbed a hold of me. And now the crowd's yelling and screaming and the clock's ticking down. And that was the end of the Ironman streak. So. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what, well, let me ask this after that game in that season, how many games did you miss? None. Exactly. <laughs> you I didn't enough. miss another shift. Were you salty at all? Or was it kind of just like, well, yeah, that is what it is. No, no. Here's the deal. I gave myself my, my, I told you my, my sister's crippled. Yep. So I gave her a lot of credit for the, the motivation of me not missing any games because I had a little bit of an injury. I never missed any days of school. I, I, if, if something happened that I had something planned and I broke my arm, I'd put a cast on it and go do what I was going to do. If you want to get sick, check yourself into a hospital for three days. And by the time you're there for three days, you'll be sick. But if you think, okay, I'm hurting. I can't hurt it anymore. I'm just going to live my life normally and I'm going to play the game. It'll be okay. You just play through it. Yeah. So I was able to do that. But I, when they did articles on the Ironman streak, I gave her a lot of credit for me being able to get a little bit of a bang in the ankle or a sore shoulder or whatever. And she would never, ever get out of this chair. She had no muscles in her legs. So there was a lot of, of, of big stories written about the Ironman streak and my mother and my sister. So it was more of a blow to them than it was. And I, and I can't say it wasn't to me because I was disappointed because I'd never played any games just to play. I, right. I finished the game and played the game fully. And I, I wasn't going back with the team. We had a break. We didn't play till the 26th, till Boxing Day, which is the day after Christmas in Canada. And I stayed at my farm. So I didn't sleep really well. And it was about seven in the morning. I woke up and it was one of those days in the Midwest here where it's blue sky and, and really cold. But you looked out the window and it looked like it was 80 degrees. And I went down to the barn. And I saddled up my horse and I went for a ride out on my property. 
And I, I said to myself, what really happened here? You know, my family didn't get in a car accident. And my daughter was killed or something happened to my wife or no, nobody got sick. My parents are still, nothing happened to anybody. All that happened here is I missed a hockey game. Who cares? And I never, I never talked to the coach about it. I never talked to, you know, obviously people ask me about it, but yeah. it, it, for me, it was over and that was the end of it. But I, I never missed. Then I thought, well, my shoulder's a little sore. Maybe I'll miss a couple of games. I never yeah, missed another shift. I was going to say, might as well stay <laughs> if you're hurt now. Jeez. So you, you move on to Los Angeles for a season and then uh, finish in, in hometown Edmonton. In Edmonton. In Alberta. And yeah. of course, you know, Messier, Gretzky, I mean, you you name Grant Fuhrer. I mean, so many people. Paul Coffey. Paul yeah. Coffey. Um, Andy Moak. What a what a what a great experience there! Because now you're the vet. You're the yeah. You might be the oldest guy on the team. I maybe well, I would have been. Yeah, it yeah. It was a great team. I wish it was just before they had all the personal trainers and all the the nutritionists and you know the the back rubs before the game and all that stuff. It was just starting the uh, training camp. Uh, workout facility and all those different things the mentality was still play hockey in the winter time and then live your life in the summer and then go play hockey instead of staying in like these guys don't take any time off now they're in top shape all the time yeah and i i was just getting involved in that so i didn't get i wasn't playing to the top of my game at the end of my career as I was at the, I wish I had known a lot more of this information, but it was exciting, you know, traveling with Gretzky and, and these guys, and, and it was like a junior hockey club. We had fun. At the end of practice, we'd, the coaches would leave the ice and we'd take our sticks and throw them in the middle of the rink and Gretz or, or Mess or Paul Coffey or Kevin Lowe or somebody would get down on his knees and throw three sticks over there and three sticks over there. Wherever your stick went, that was your team. And we played three on three with Andy Moog in one net and Grant Fear in the other net for hours, you know, like kids. So it was a really fun, fun time, yeah. you know. And, uh, and playing with uh, Semenko too. Semenko was a great, he's another one of these tough guys that were, yeah. was a great personality, really neat guy. We did all sorts of things. We did, uh, you know, because of, because of Gretzky, we, we, there was all sorts of people in the dressing room all the time and, you know, different, different things that we got involved with. So people talk about, you know, the Bruins players in the late sixties when or came, uh, you know, of, of, wow, of, uh, amazing. Uh, sit there and just watch him play and you're in awe and so forth. Was that truly the case with Gretzky? Well, I played with Gordy, played against or and played with Gretzky. Gretzky, Gretzky was a guy that was like a ghost. He could skate laterally as good as he could forward. He read the play. He played with a guy named Yuri Curry and Semenk. Semenk took care of him. Uh, he wasn't a physical guy, but he was always in the right spot. He had blazing speed. He was one of the guys that... Uh, could slap shot a, uh, a slap shot in the top corner. Most guys missed the net. 
shoot it over the net. You know, there are guys now that can do that, but he was a special player. There's no doubt. When he got the puck, something was happening. But it wasn't like Orr picking the puck up on a penalty kill, going around his net about three times with somebody chasing him, and then skating down the whole team and scoring a goal. He was electric. So they were they were in different eras. Gordy was a, a whole different ball game, and I never saw Gordy play in his prime. But Gordy was tough. Gordy, nobody went near him. You know, he stood in front of the net and and did so many good things. But they were all different styles of game. Right. To me, if I had my choice, I'd take Orr. Bobby Orr was the best player that I. I've seen. Was he tough in front of the net? We yeah. always hear about the offensive or what about the defensive? He was a tough guy. He was tough too. He could fight. Could you move him or was he just No, he was he was tough. Wow. Yeah, you didn't you didn't move him in front of the net. And nobody took liberties with him either. You know, because he could stay he didn't have very many fights, but he didn't lose any. Right. You know, he didn't you you knew when you went into the corner with him. The 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 philosophy was if you're going to dump the puck into the zone, dump it to Bobby because he would have to pass it to his partner. And then you would go after him. If you passed it in, or dumped it in his corner, he'd pass it to Orr and he'd be gone. Yeah. So, so he, he had another speed. He could, he handled the puck, you know, he had Espo and uh, Cashman and Hodge in front of the net, Espo scored all his goals yeah. within the crease area, you know, yeah. and Orr would make sure the puck got stayed in the blue line. And he started the game of having the, the, the defenseman join the play. There was a time where the coaches didn't want the defenseman carrying the puck over the red line. Right. You know, that was, they weren't allowed to do that. They had to get the puck and either pass it or dump it in. So he changed the whole game. Wow. So you played from the, the mid sixties to almost the mid eighties in the NHL. Yeah. Like you said, the whole Gordy Howe to Bobby Orr to Gretzky now and everybody in between. What do you think was the biggest technological achievement that helped players play better? Was it the stick? Was it the skates? All, all the equipment, That's it. all the equipment changed. My gloves weighed 15 pounds. I, <laughs> I had the same gloves for three different teams. And what I would do is just paint them. <laughs> I mean, when you started playing, was there even a, a curve on the blade? No, not much guys. And if there was, the guys would heat their own sticks in the hydroculator, which was a hot pack that you put on and bend them under the door. So then the hook sticks came in and all the different things. And then the, the, uh, I actually, I actually was the first player in the NHL to use white tape. I used white tape on my stick. And then I, uh, the, the hook sticks were coming in when I was in London. So Bobby or uh, Bobby Hull and, and Stan Makita were using these hook sticks. And I had, I had something like uh, 28 goals at Christmas time. And now all the kids wanted to hook their stick like Bobby Hull, and you could fire the puck like a rocket with these things. So I decided that I was going to hook my stick. And I, I 
I scored 28 goals in the first half of the season. In the second half of the season, I think I scored eight. <laughs> but I could fire the puck like a rocket. Yeah. And it would hit the glass and it would go all over the place. And then I'd cut out the hook sticks. But uh, yeah, the equipment got lighter. The skates got better. The equipment, you know, is just better, stronger, faster type thing. And the other thing that got better is the, the skating technology. The, the guys became better skaters, everybody. The checkers were just as fast. As, the, the other thing, when a, when a big guy came in the league back in the 70s, he was usually fairly slow. Now you had big guys coming in like Lindros and, and uh, uh, Lemieux and those kind of guys, and they were just as fast as the little guys. So the skating uh, ability, I think, changed the game a lot, and the goaltending equipment changed the game a lot. Yeah, Those were the technological things that, that really changed the game. Got to, I know we're running short on time, but I, I've got to hit some Tulsa Oilers for the fans or they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll lynch yeah. us. Uh, but before we do that, so you finish your career and uh, I guess you get involved in the hockey agency type, if I remember reading right, uh, of hockey, and you were trying to fill in the gap for some UK players for them to... Oh, yeah, I was an agent for six months. And, and, <laughs> and you play in your little showcase of players, and they offer you the contract. Right. Um, and if you look at the stats, it's it's almost like a rec league. He's got like 97 goals a season <laughs> over there. So I'm assuming it, uh, not looking for a dollar amount, but I'm assuming the contract was right for you to go over there. Well, I... I, I really enjoy adventures and that was an adventure going over to a, a foreign country, uh, going to Scotland. It happened two weeks before school was going to start. So I couldn't take my family. So the major, a lot of the, my contract was plane tickets. So the kids could fly over to Europe, fly back, fly over at Christmas. I flew back at Christmas, uh, taking my wife to Paris, taking my wife on in training camp in Sweden uh and then at the end of the season we went to, on a trip to greece wow. uh so it was it was more of a family experience we lived in a little uh, in dundee scotland we were 60 miles from st andrews i learned to golf over there uh it rained every day i rode a bicycle uh they gave me a car to drive with my name all over the side of it and nobody <laughs> knew who i was and and we just had fun. It was just, it was fun. The next year, I, they wanted me to come back to Dundee. And I, and I said, well, the only way I'm going to come back now that I have time to organize my family is if I come back with my family and I have a house to stay in. And they couldn't get me a house. So a team in, in southern uh, England, uh, 60 miles north of London, called Peterborough, Peterborough Pirates. Yeah. They had been relegated. They, they have the soccer relegation that the bottom place team in the premier division plays the top place team in the, in the second division. And if whatever team wins, they go, if the, if the, the second place team wins, they go into the premier division and this other team drops down into the first division. So Peterborough had been relegated and they wanted to get back out of playoff out of into the premier division. So they called me and they said, what would it take you to come there? And I said, if you can get me a house, I can, 
I can come. And they got me a house, three bedroom house. And my little girls were all growing up. My youngest daughter at that time was, I think still uh, like four. I had three girls. They went to school and wore the little kilts and, and we rode our bikes around town and we would go to London for the weekend with nothing to do and visit all the little towns. My wife was a personal trainer at the gym and she was doing all these road shows and all these little English towns. We went up to Loch Ness where the Loch Ness monster is. And I played in a men's league game and my wife taught aerobics and, you know, we had all sorts of experiences of living in a, in a, in a different country, uh, as a family. Uh, so, uh, the experience was, was really, really great. We, my parents came over and we went to, you know, all the Aberdeen, Scotland and, and, uh, Paris and different places. Bev's mom came over and a lot of her relatives that she hadn't seen since she was a little girl were all from England and she got to meet all those people and these little weedy English towns. So it was really quite unique. And then we played hockey all over, but, but each team had three imports, which would be from United States, Canada, Finland, Russia, whatever. They were allowed three imports and we would end up playing against the other team's imports. So we weren't playing against slouch players. We were playing against imported players pretty well. And then the English guys would kind of give us a break, but we'd kind of play the whole game. We, we played a lot of hockey. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Wow. It was a um, lot of hockey. So then you coach in the IHL in Phoenix, but then you get to Tulsa. Well, I got a call from a guy named Ray Maron, yeah. who was part of the Toronto Maple Leafs organization back when I played for Tulsa, uh, when I was with the Leafs. And he called me and he said, listen, we're starting up the Central Hockey League. Uh, would you be interested in coming and coaching in Tulsa? And I looked at it and I said, yeah, I think that would be, that would be a neat thing to do because I liked Tulsa when I came. Uh, I was fortunate because I was just getting out of the game. So I knew a lot of guys that were just retiring or, or not playing a lot in the leagues that they were playing in. So I was able to recruit a bunch of really good players. So, um, and just for the listeners, so Tulsa has a, a deep history of hockey back to the 1920s, almost yeah. like the start yeah. of the NHL. Yeah. Uh, but then in 83, uh, uh, the league starts to have trouble. Tulsa has trouble. We had on Cam yeah. Connor talking about how the team basically folded, but the league kept the team together just because of the scheduling and so forth like that. So then there was no team. Now, Muron's put together Central Hockey League yeah. now. And Tulsa here. So we're in 1992. First of all, when you played with Tulsa, where did you play? We played at the convention center. Oh, you did? Yeah. Played at the convention center. Okay. If I, I'm pretty sure that's where we played. I was here for a month. And then I was here for a few games while I was with London. Just came down. The time I came down with London... I didn't play any games in Tulsa. I played for Tulsa and I played in Omaha, Nebraska, which was a, a Ranger farm club. And I played in Oak City, which was a Bruins farm club. Oh. And then I went back to London. When I came back in, when I was signed the pro contract, I came back in December, I think, and played eight or 10 games with Tulsa. Uh, and I, again, hurt my shoulder. 
So they brought me back up to Toronto to have their doctors look at it instead of Tulsa. And then I went to Rochester and, and played uh, and finished the season. So that year I played in London. I hurt my knee in training camp, went back to London, played five games in London, went to Toronto, went to Tulsa, went to Rochester, went back to Toronto, and then I got traded to Detroit. What a year. I had stuff everywhere. What a year. What, what, what a year. Yeah. Too bad you didn't have frequent flyer points. <laughs> Seriously. Um, yeah. So, okay, so 92, Tulsa. Uh, and you were the coach there for, uh, well, you involved in the organization five for years. a long time. It was about five years. Uh, You've been involved in the organization for a long time. Yeah. Jeff Lund, uh, a local business guy here, owned the team. We became really good friends. Uh, I was able to put together a, a great group of guys that were community oriented. We, we got into all the, you know, the, they had the fan club and the players were doing schools and all sorts of stuff. Uh, it was a great marketing tool. Taylor Hall, who's still the general manager of the team, was one of the guys that I spent hours on the phone trying to talk into coming down and playing. We had a salary cap, so these guys weren't making a lot of money. So what we had to do, we, we supplied their apartment and their furniture. And, and I went out and got a whole stack of restaurant deals, uh, Olive Garden and Fuddruckers and Wendy's Pizza, Wendy's and pizza places. So the guys could eat for free or half price. We got a gym deal. Better we got a golf that. deal. And, and wins the cup. Right. So we, it was a really exciting year, really a fun year. And then, because... Um, my my wife's an Okie gal. Yeah. Um, and she remembers going to uh, was it the convention center you guys used to play? We played in the convention it, center. The, no, it was a convention center. Yeah. And um, you know, she 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 remembers, you know, I guess it held maybe five, seven thousand, but she remembers it being a rocking place. It was full. All full all we averaged sixty eight hundred people. Yeah, she right. said it was always packed. Yeah. Um who were the biggest rivals? I know OKC was one. Oak, Oak City was a big rivalry. Well, there was only six teams. Oh, wow. So the biggest rivalries were Wichita because they had a tough team and we had a fairly tough team. So there was, you know, Dougie Lawrence still lives in town. Uh, Dougie Piernak lives in town. Uh, uh, like I mentioned, Clage Cable. I brought those guys in. That There were three Cable brothers. They all played in town and Clage is still here. Uh, Derek Toninato. Uh, they're all involved with the minor hockey program, but uh, we, the, uh, Henry Primo was one of our big sponsors and, the, and there was all sorts of sponsors that came to the game. Uh, uh, we had uh, Hesselbein Tire was a, another good friend of mine, Roy Lowers, and uh, they all came to all the games and uh, it became a, became a really almost like St. Louis where there was a really a, a, a neat outing to go to a hockey game in, in Tulsa. And there was, there was some pretty good hockey and it was pretty aggressive. Yeah. Very aggressive. Yes. Yeah. Um, it seems like you developed, like you said, uh, and I guess we're talking about culture. You developed a great culture for players right. that want to come to Tulsa. So as a coach or even someone in, in the administration, uh, how do you go about developing that culture so that you get players? Because no offense, I mean, we all live in Tulsa. We think it's a great place, but not a lot of hockey players want to come to Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
And to live here too, yeah. Well, the, the first thing you have to do as a coach is you have to have a trust with the players. They have to believe that you're telling them the truth. They have to believe that you've got their best interest in, at, in heart. And if you tell them something, you have to follow through with that. So my, my philosophy with these guys, and some of these guys were playing at higher level leagues, but again, they were sitting on the bench. They weren't playing a lot. Hockey players want to play. I had a guy in here named Craig Cox, who was, who, if you Google, uh, Probert. Oh, was a tough fight. guy. Yeah. Cox. Cox. Oh, that Cox. Yeah, he's that, there was tough. a 10 minute fight with Coxie and Coxie played for San Jose. These guys were the guys that sat on the bench and got tapped and said, go fight. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to play hockey. So I said to them, okay, you guys come in here and play. I don't want to come to the rink if I'm not enjoying myself coming to the rink. So I'm going to make an atmosphere here at the rink. I'm going to have practices where we're going to have some fun. I played in the practices because I could still play at the time. We would finish our practice and at the end of the practice we would do the same thing in Edmonton we picked pick teams and we'd play what we call mini hockey and we'd play Tommy Corrales was another guy that still lives in town here so there's quite a few guys that still live in town here but I was one of the players I was the coach I made final decisions I I, I had to trade guys I had to cut guys I had to make all those decisions but I was I was one of the players I didn't put myself above the team now, they needed to perform, but if I had promised them something, I, I, I had a guy named uh, Jamie Steer who was playing in New Mexico at the time, and he was ready to quit hockey. I've had four or five guys ready to quit hockey. Mike McWilliams was ready to quit hockey. He was a great player that we had. He was drafted by the Islanders. I had some guys, and I said, listen, just come in here and play and see if you enjoy the atmosphere. And they came in and played and they stayed for a few years. Jamie Steer came in at the end of the season. He said, I'm not playing anymore at the end of this season. He came to me and he said, listen, and he was an elite player. He came to me and he says, if you promise me that I would be play the whole season here next year, and I could put my kids in school in September and know they're going to be there in, in, at the end of the season because last year I had some promises made to me and they weren't keeping them. And I don't want to play this minor hockey anymore. I said, I'll, I'll promise you that. He said, I'll play for a couple hundred dollars less, give me more on the salary cap. And I allowed him to play his last year with us and he was one of our top scorers. So, so if I made an agreement with a guy, I never went back in that agreement and said, listen, you know, they, they use the excuse, well, that's hockey. I'm cutting you now, but that's hockey type thing. So we had a group of guys that were, were committed. They were good players. They were, they were uh, solid guys. Uh, they were crazy guys because the reason they were playing in the Central Hockey League, Dougie Lawrence probably could have played in the NHL had he not had a lifestyle that he did off the ice. Yeah. But, but he was under control and, and – and that's what he wanted to do. And, and he ended up scoring 100 points for the Tulsa Oilers. So at that time, uh, was the team affiliated with an NHL team? Or no? no, we had no affiliations.
but I had connections with, with different teams where they sent me a player here or there, but there's no affiliations like there are today. Because I often wonder today, because uh, I mean, we're Tulsa Orla fans and, and we go to quite a few games. And I think, you know, Coach Rob Murray is a great guy, good coach. And I think he's trying to develop that culture there. But I often wonder, it's got to be tough for these now East Coast guys, because um, if you get your contract, you're not getting a lot of money in the East Coast League. You've got the guys coming either from the NHL or definitely the AHL that have got the higher contracts. They're coming down. They're pissed unless it's a rehab, but the coach has got to sit guys and it must be difficult to sit in a room with a guy that's making 40 grand a year compared to another guy that's making hundreds. It is. It's a different, it's and, a di different mentality now. And, and I wonder how the coaches negotiate that. Well, the other thing is that the teams take players out of your lineup to take them up. Right. Well, and, and you lose, you lose, and you're not going to lose a, you're not going to lose a, a seventh defenseman. You're going to lose your best defenseman. Well, and I just read that Utah Grizzlies that their number one goalie just got called up and then because the somebody right. because somebody in the NHL, so the AHL guy moved up, so now he moves up, and um, and we've had on both uh, uh, Bernie, the head coach of Rapid City, and his assistant right. Jeremy. Uh, on here and they're in round two with them and Grizzlies are pissed because they yeah. they got called up. No, like, I know. Well, what can you do? Right? That's hard as a coach. Yeah. Does that, that was... affect locker room chemistry at all? Just not constantly having oh, guys that's come huge. in and out. I mean, that's huge. huge. Yeah. That's huge. You've got, we were allowed three veteran players. They changed the rule because of us. I brought in a whole pile of veteran guys that played games all over the place. When we dominated for that first three years, all mm -hmm. of a sudden they decided that they were going to change the rules and each team was only allowed three veteran guys. So now I had a group of 10 guys that I had made promises to. And I said to them, I don't care what you do away from the game. As long as you come and play hard for me, I'm not going to, cut you for a young kid because we're not a development league. We're an entertainment league. We weren't developing players. We were developing people. And it was, it was uh, guys that, that again, were sitting on the bench somewhere else and playing. So now all of a sudden I had to take a bunch of my guys and they all went to different teams. So that's why there was a, there was a, a rebuilding period after I'd been here for three years where we've been so good for so long, we had to rebuild. And I just got to that point where I, I had it rebuilt. We had a tough year. Uh, the last year I was here and all of a sudden they decided to go a different direction. And that's when I left. Yeah. So, uh, but it's a lot more difficult when you're when you're affiliated and they got guys taking players up away from you and back and forth. I know Rob and he is a good coach. They've got a great team. They've got a, a really good team. But the East Coast League, there's guys playing in the East Coast League that are right there to play in the NHL. So yeah. it's a top league that they're playing in. Yeah, no, it's not, you know, for the spoiled brats, you know, coming from a Boston in New York, you know, you always make fun of, uh, oh, they're just, you know, uh, in the minor leagues. But yeah, no, it's no joke. It's fast. It's rough. Yeah. And it's good hockey. Really right. It's yeah. good hockey. So 
lightning round questions. We're going to let Gary go. Um, if you've got a story, if you want to tell it, it's great. If it's a name, you can just say that. But you, we're going to put you thinking about your playing career only. Okay. Fast okay. questions. You're talking about hockey? Hockey. Yeah. Fast questions. All right. You ready? Yeah. Worst dressing room in the NHL. Well, you guys aren't going to like this one. It's a, it's a garden, is it? It won't be the first time we heard that. Yeah, that's yeah. true. There was rats in the, in the oh, bottom God. of the gardens. Which one had the worst ice conditions? Pardon me? Worst ice conditions in the NHL. You know, the worst ice conditions in the NHL was at Madison Square Gardens because, Somebody said that. because of the events. Somebody oh, said yeah. that too. Okay. So, so, so what happens is we're playing in Madison Square Gardens right after the circus. So the circus is in town. So what they do is they put boards down on the ice and then they throw dirt on the boards and they got elephants running around and tankers and, you know, taggers and all their different guys. And now they, now the, the circus is over on Sunday night or Sunday afternoon and they've got to clear it up for the game. So when we walked into Madison square gardens on, on Sunday night, it's on the second, third floor. You go up an elevator and now you walk around to where the dressing rooms are. All these animals were in cages. We got taggers here and we got, we got elephants over in the corner tied up. They had a gorilla in a glass cage. The glass was about that thick and he was huge. He was sitting in this big glass cage and we went in went in for warm-up and where the where this the when they laid the boards down the dirt would seep through so they had cleaned it up as much as possible but in warm-up you'd be skating and all of a sudden you'd hit a piece of dirt or hit something so we ended up starting the game and we said we can't play we can't play on this ice because it's dangerous so we ended up canceling the game so anyhow Game's over. Now everybody leaves and we're last coming out of the rink. And now we're walking around here with all these, all these animals. They're in the, and there's no, no people around. We're walking out and this ape is sitting over in the corner in this cage. And we had a guy on our team named Bobby Bond. He was a tough defenseman who looked like an ape at times. <laughs> not really so we get we start getting in front of this ape and he's sitting in the corner and he's looking at us like this and we started jumping around and, woo, 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 and all this stuff and all of a sudden he leaped up out of his corner and just smashed that glass i mean he was coming through he wanted to kill us hit this glass and he was he was so angry that we all took off and, <laughs> just in case this, this glass broke but you know th those were the buildings uh, the buffalo was kind of the same they had a lot of things going in and out and uh, uh the ice wasn't great there yeah L la had a tough time because of the humidity sometimes yeah yep and these are all things we asked you know former nhl as they say the same thing beyond yeah. And a lot of them say ice conditions in Los Angeles were pretty rough. And of course, you know, the old Boston Garden, where, sure. garden where, where I'm from, the old garden. Um, what was it like to play in the garden? Because we do have. Oh, it was, it was exciting. 
you know. Because the balconies kind of came down on the ice. Yeah. Did that make a difference? It to did. You? Yeah, it was, you know, and these buildings were packed. Like they had, they had, every building had capacity people yeah. and extra standing room. And, you know, so they were hanging all over the place and, and loud. And, uh, you know, I, and I think just because it was New York, uh, Madison Square Gardens has a has an aura to it, yeah. uh, just like the Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens. The, I'll tell you the best ice in the in the in the business was the old Olympia yeah. in Detroit. Mm -hmm. It was amazing ice. Yeah. Um, the old Wurlitzer organ in Old Chicago Stadium was it really something to behold? Yeah, it was amazing. Big pipes pipes were about that big. It sat up in the back there. And it was it just rocked. rocked the whole building. Yeah, people again hanging off the rafters, and <coughs> it was it. I it, it was an experience that some of these young guys would really enjoy to be involved in, because we ended up playing with Edmonton. We played Chicago in the playoffs. Uh, you know, in the playoffs again, our our whole next level yeah. of of uh, intensity. Yeah. Uh, so there were some really unique experiences. Toughest goalie to score against in Well, Ken Dryden played for the Montreal Canadiens. We had a trip into Montreal one time where we, we didn't very often play two games in a, in a, a trip. We usually played a game and left. We had two games in Montreal. So that meant we had a day off and then we played them the following day. So when you have a day off, what you do is they have practice time so that the home team usually practices at 1030 in the morning. And then we go on right after that. So we would, we would uh, get to the rink early and then watch the Montreal Canadians practice and then get dressed and go, go play. I watched the Montreal Canadians practice and they did three on twos, two on ones, line up and shoot one on one on the goalies, breakaways, all that stuff. I'll bet you they didn't score more than three goals on Ken Dryden in the whole practice. Wow. Usually goalies are picking pucks out of the net and getting them out and, you know, because guys are scoring all the time. They didn't score on him. So the, the second game we played in, I get a breakaway on, on Ken Dryden. Montreal Forum, people are yelling and screaming. And, and in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I, I can't score on this guy. <laughs> You know, I just watched him in practice and he stopped everything. So I come down and I made a quick move and I lost the puck. Well, he went with my body. He went over here and the puck slid into the corner of the net and I scored. So it was like a fake out. And I had no idea. And nobody in the building knew that I had lost the puck except me. So I skated back to the bench and the guy said, what a great deacon. I said, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to keep that to myself. <laughs> so goalies. Hold uh, on, Dan. Pete, Hold well, on. let me just follow up with this all one. Right. Sorry, Andrew. Sorry, Andrew. Take all so right today they say, because uh, back in the day, it was stand-up goaltending. Yeah. And uh, it was all about angles. And they say goalies back in the day used to make saves. Today, goalies just block shots. They play angles. They, you, you have to be a, a geometrist for angles. You have to be. Oh, they come so did, far out of the net. Yeah. Did, angles, right? Did, and, and, what they do. 
after having you know a few goalies uh, on the show, you as a coach, did you have a coach a goalie or did you do what we heard was coaches just leave the goalies alone? A lot of times you do, but what I would do is I would talk to the goalies and I would say, you know, what kind of shots you want today? Where do you want the shots from? Do you, what kind of a warm up do you want in practice? You know, and they would tell me and I would listen to them. We had a great goalie in here, Tony Martino was an unbelievable goalie and, and he was part of the reason why we won the championship. Uh, but I would talk to Tony and say, you know, how are you doing? He'd say, I'm okay today. Just do whatever you want. Or he'd say, yeah, I'd like to work on, on left side shots or angles or, or that type of thing. So when do you pull a goalie? You know what? The one thing I try not to do is embarrass a guy. Uh, there's sometimes that goalies want to stay in and say, listen, I'm not, uh, you know, I need to fix this myself here. And you, you have to know your people. You have to know the mentality of your goalies and stuff. There's times when you don't have a choice where you're thinking he's lost it. You know, the, the good goalies can have a bad goal scored on them and not let it affect them. You can tell watching your goalie, if he gets a bad goal scored on him, that he's affected. And now it's going to affect him on the next shot, the next shot. So, so you have to be able to, to read your players and say, okay, if I bring this guy out now, he's going to be burning. But you had to, you had to feel that it's more of a feeling than, and, but goalies are, you know, I always, I always was real good friends with goalies. Actually, Andy Moog is one of my best friends. He lives in Dallas, worked with Dallas for a long time and is still working with Portland Winterhawks of the Western Hockey League. But I would talk to, I said, to, I say to players, talk to the goalies and ask them where they don't want you to shoot. You want to score goals. Where does a goalie not want you to shoot? Where's this? Where's this, the, the strong side of the goalie? Well, that's his catching side. He wants to catch the puck. They can move their feet a lot slower than they move their hands. Now, the goalies today, they butterfly and they cover a lot of the net and all that stuff. But somehow, lower shots. Now, you need to be able to pick top corners because guys are going down and you need to be able to do all that stuff. But I've had more success at when I shoot lower and the goalie can't handle the rebound, if the goalie catches the puck, there's no rebound. The goalie blocks the puck and it goes over into the corner, there's no rebound. If I shoot the puck over the net, there's no rebound. But if I keep the puck in play, if I put it somewhere where the goalie can't stop the, can't stop the rebound, did you see the goal that uh, Matthew scored? Mm -hmm. yeah. What was that? Was a pass off the pad, boom, in the net. Yeah. If he's going for the top corner, that's no rebound. It right. plays over and Matthews doesn't score. Right. So, so my philosophy, and, and it's a little bit antiquated because the game is now top corners and all that stuff, is that pucks find ways to get in the net when sometimes they're flat on the ice. Guys get in the corner, whip the puck, and boom, and whip it at the net, and, the, and it gets caught in the goalie's feet, yeah. and it's in the net. Yeah. So if you can do that with, with – with, uh, at the right time, you've got a better opportunity than me trying to pick a corner at the top goalie with a guy six foot six, and I've got that much to shoot at. 
I'm not probably going to score, yeah. but I'm going to maybe score on a rebound, or maybe I'm going to score on the second rebound. So how do I do that? I keep the puck away from his glove hand. The stick side is his, his weaker side. So I'm shooting down low on this side. He can't move his pad as, as quick. And, and you just get into positions where, where you're playing the odds because the goalies are so good today that they, you almost have to score on a rebound. But there is, there is a statistic, and I don't follow statistics very much, but, but 80% of the goals are scored below the knees and down. So you've got to go with the odds sometimes. Yeah. Andrew, I'm sorry, I digress. No, you're fine. Which player had the innate ability to get under your skin? Who's the rat in your career? That would never fight you specifically, too, just somebody that would always get at you, but just... Uh, there was a guy and, and he wasn't on the other team. I mean, he, I played against him on the other team and he wasn't as bad as he was when I played with him. And his name was the rat. His name was Kenny Linsman. Oh, yeah. He's the rat. Yeah. And he played on my team with me in Edmonton. And he was an aggravating guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was on the ice, but I, you know, a lot of times you don't, Sometimes you don't get shifts against these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he ended up in Boston and, and I just saw a video a couple of years ago, him on an alumni game. He still skates. With him. Yeah. Yeah. He's in good shape. And but uh, he's, he's a good guy. Oh yeah. Um, so who was your favorite? And I guess you could pick two. You probably don't want to, if you don't want to, you can say pass. Your two favorite line mates. Of that well, I had a, I had a line mate who now is the, uh, he works for the NHL. He's in Toronto and he works in the war room. You know, every game they've got TV cameras on every game that's going on. So Saturday night, there will be how many games? 12 games going. Yeah. And somebody <clears throat> would be sitting there with a computer watching when they, the referees have a call. They weren't sure whether the puck went over the line. They would go back to Toronto. And they would look at that TV screen and see if the puck went in, even in a fight or a penalty or anything. They'd go back to Toronto. His name is Mike Murphy. He played for LA, he right? played for the for New York Rangers, and he was one of my favorite linemen in St. Louis. He we became really good friends. Uh, uh, Murph and I we go all the way back. What he got traded, I think, in '73. In, in Toronto or in, uh, in, uh, in St. Louis, uh, Claude LaRose, the Montreal Canadian guy that, that I told you about that, that they burnt the, the door down in the, on the train to shave him. Uh, he was another, one of my favorite linemen. Uh, you know, I, I played with Glenny Anderson. Yeah. I, Messier was a, a, a left winger when I played there. So I played center with, with Andy and, and mess, uh, Dave Hunter in Saint, in, in Toronto or in uh, Edmonton was was a, a great lineman for me. And a guy named Pat Hughes, he played for Buffalo for a little bit. I uh, played with those guys in Edmonton. Uh, but I think probably Murph was probably the my favorite guy because he he read me. And and you look at all the guys. You look at you look at Brett Hull and Adam Oates. Yeah. You look at Gretzky and Yeri Curry, you know, Lemieux and Yager. 
if you have a guy that you're, you know, like the back of your hand and he's on your line all the time, you really build a rapport with that. And I was only fortunate to have that for a short period of time in St. Louis. The rest of the time I played with different guys and I didn't get that luxury of having that one guy. <clears throat> the toughest building to play in, and it might be Philadelphia. I think Boston was probably one of them because it was a small building. It was, there was, wasn't much room there and they had big defensemen. And you played in the big bad Bruins heyday of the early mid-70s. Yeah, they had so Teddy, Teddy Green played with Orr, uh, Donnie Ori. He ended up playing in St. Louis with us. Gary Doak was another yeah. really good defenseman. Yeah. Mark, they, Mark Hawk was a great yeah. offensive, defensive forward. Well, well you, build, you build your team from the goaltender out. You don't build your team from Gretzky back, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. You don't you don't build your team from your goal scorer. If you don't have defense that move the puck and get it out of the zone, if you don't have goalies that are going to stop the puck, you don't have, it doesn't help having unbelievable forwards because they don't get the puck. So that's why uh, Nick Lindstrom in, in Detroit hardly even had a slap shot, got the puck at the point, whipped it at the net, Iserman would tip it in, you know, you had uh, Chelios. I, I coached Chelios. I said to him, what's your key? He said, off the ice, my one pass out of the zone. If it had to be off the glass and out, my job is only to get the puck out over the blue line. So the other team had to clear the zone. And that's all I did. So, so if you build your team from a great goalie to great defense and then throw some some good forwards and you're going to have a far better team. And if you had all good goal scorers, no defense and no goalie, you're not going to win. So that's the, the philosophy. Wow. Mine anyhow. Yeah. Andrew. Well, last question. I know it's kind of broad, but uh, just the first thing that comes to your mind when asked this question, your favorite hockey memory from your NHL career. Well, there's gotta be a few because obviously it's your first goal. You know, yeah. you, you'll remember that forever. Yeah, right in front of the net, boy. Yeah, that was a great yeah, shot. I was in the slot. Uh, I guess another one would have been Scotty Bowman left St. Louis. I'm not sure if he went to Montreal first. I think he went to Montreal first, but then he went to Buffalo, coached in Buffalo. And Scotty was always one of these guys that, hated to lose when he came back into a town especially he was married in st louis he married a st louis girl so when he came back into st louis he had his teams tuned to, to play against us and we ended up we ended up beating them uh i think it was eight nothing and i got seven points wow. against scotty wow. so i got a hat trick and four assists so that was pretty exciting and then the other one was, and it was just kind of like the scenario that's going on now. St. Louis played Minnesota a lot in the playoffs. That was a team that we played against. We played a game. Series was tied 2-2. Tied 2-2. We went back to Minnesota. 
day one in Minnesota. We had to come back to St. Louis and win to tie the series. And then we had to go back into Minnesota and play game seven in Minnesota. And we ended up winning that game in overtime to advance to the next round against Boston. And it was back very very seldom did we charter a plane with that particular, the games were right back, back to back. We chartered a plane to go to Minnesota, uh, won the seventh game. I think uh, Danny O'Shea scored in overtime to win the game, to put us on to the next series. We ended up chartering back to St. Louis, got back to St. Louis about 4.30 in the morning. When we got back to the airport in St. Louis, there was 10,000 people at the airport. Nice. And that was pretty exciting. Wow. That, that showed the fan base in St. Louis, you know, that type of thing. So awesome. I think those would be some memories. Obviously, uh, I played in, in uh, Stanley Cup playoffs in, in, in different places, but those would be the memories that I, I would think of. Awesome. Gary, you've been so gracious with your time, an NHL legend. Yes. We can't thank you enough for coming on and doing this live. You had called me and he said, we could do Zoom. He said, ah, let's just meet. We'll do it live. And it's like, sure. Let's well, it's always that. nicer to meet the people that you're talking to. And absolutely. you have a little better idea of who I am. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, Maybe we'll catch you at the uh, rink skating there in Tulsa. Well, that's good. I, I, you know, Tulsa is one of my favorite hockey places in the world. I've played in 25 different countries. Uh, I've lived in 12 states, uh, different provinces in Canada. I, I love all those places, uh, but Tulsa is one of my favorite places. So great people and good hockey program. And uh, I've really enjoyed my time here. Awesome. Thank you very much. Awesome. And we will call it a close.